Hello and welcome to my podcast, Facing Race. I'm your host, Leila Schultz-Sames. This week, we're tackling football. That's about as American as apple pie and millions of Americans love it. But what happens when social justice enters the sports arena? Find out more on this week's episode of Facing Race. So I have to confess that I really, really love sports, and it's really my guilty pleasure, especially American football. And I'm really happy, actually, that the NFL season is starting up again so I can watch my six-time Super Bowl-winning champions, without Tom Brady, of course, make it back to the Super Bowl. And I also have to confess that I probably know more about football than I should. I can call a screen pass. I can tell what's pass interference. I even know what unabated to the quarterback means. I don't know why, but I've always really liked sports. And I will say this, it has, at least in my opinion in my life, always been a really good way for me to connect with people. And maybe that's because it seems like in America, people from all backgrounds and races and income levels can come together to enjoy sports. It's really something that a lot of people just love and enjoy. But that being said, with a lot of recent social unrest over racism, it's really starting to seep into sports culture. And it's making some spectators really uneasy. And some people think politics should just stay out of sports. So that really got me thinking about politics and race race and sports and how it's all just become part of mainstream America. So I wanted to start by looking at the history of segregation in American football. For those of you who don't know, from its inception in 1920, The NFL was basically a loose collation of various regional teams, and it was called the American Professional Football Association, and it had comparatively few African-American players. By most accounts, there is a total of about nine black people who suited up for NFL teams between 1920 and 1926. And some of them were actually quite famous. There's a future attorney and a black activist. He actually also went on to to win awards as an artist, Paul Robeson. There's also a very famous race record producer named J. Maya Williams, uh, Fritz Pollard, Bobby Marshall. They were also the, the first of a few black players in the NFL as well in the 1920s. And Pollard became the first, and actually until 1989, the only black coach. Uh, I should say during those times in the the 1920s, the league actually used player coaches, so they didn't have a separate coaching staff. But all of this being said, in the 1930s, things actually changed. So many observers will attribute the, the lockout of black players to the entry of a man named George Preston Marshall, who came into the league in 1932. And Marshall openly refused to have black athletes on his Boston Braves, later Washington Redskins team, and reportedly pressured the rest of the league to follow suit. Marshall, however, was likely not the only reason. During that time, the Great Depression had stoked an increase in racism and a lot of self-inflicted segregation across the country, and internal politics likely, likely had as much an effect as external pressure. 
Marshall's hostility, interestingly enough, was specifically directed at the Black race. He actually openly allowed Native Americans on his team, including his first head coach, Lone Star Dietz, widely believed to be a Native American, though people are not entirely sure. The choice of Redskins as his team name in 1933 was actually in part to maintain the Native connections that came with the team's previous name, the Boston Braves. Another reason for Marshall's anti-Black sentiment was to curry favor in the Southern United States. Marshall's Redskins had a strong following actually in that part of the country when he vigorously defended and he actually stood up against the NFL's efforts to put expansion teams in the South until Clint Merchants and Jr.'s successful extortion attempt. So also interestingly enough, he acquired the rights to the Redskins fight song and threatened to let Marshall use and threatened to basically not let Marshall use the song and thus he got an expansion team in Dallas. So this is all sort of background information, but In any case, by 1934, there were no more black players in the league, and the NFL did not have another black player until after World War II. So most black players who wanted to play either ended up in minor leagues, about six of them joined the American Association, and several others found their way out to the Pacific Coast Professional Football League, or they also found themselves in these all-black sort of barnstorming teams like the Harlem Brown Bombers or different things. Uh, Unlike in baseball where they had the Negro Leagues and that really took off, no true football had a Negro League that was known to exist until about 1946. And by that time, the major, major leagues had already sort of become more integrated, so to speak. So who was the first black player? Well, the first black player in the NFL was actually a guy named Kenny Washington, and he went to UCLA with Jackie Robinson, who's known for integrating baseball. But for some reason or another, Kenny Washington never received the attention that he probably deserved. After the war, which led to, of course, gains for the idea of integration in many areas of American life, the Cleveland Rams owner, Dan Reeves, announced plans to move his team to the rapidly growing city of Los Angeles. This was an interesting incident because that was a city where there's an anti-discrimination ordinance and they actually threatened to block the team from using the publicly owned LA Coliseum. Largely as a result, Washington was signed by the Rams on March 21st, 1946. So that same year after the Rams had received approval to finally move to LA and Washington returned from the war, members of the African-American print media made the LA Coliseum Commission aware that the NFL did not have any African-American players and strongly reminded the commission that the Coliseum was supported by public funds. Therefore, its commission basically had to abide by this, this 1896 Supreme Court decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, by not leasing the stadium to a segregated team. Also, they specifically suggested the Rams should, in fact, give this guy, Kenny Washington, a tryout. So the commission advised the Rams that they would have to integrate the team, which basically meant they had to have at least one African-American in order to lease the Coliseum. And so that's the reason the Rams eventually decided to sign Kenny Washington. They signed him, and of course it caused all hell to break loose among owners of the other NFL franchises. 
The Rams did actually add a second black player. His name was Woody Strobe. They signed him a couple months later in May of 1946. And that basically gave them two black players. So they were able to proceed and play at the L.A. Coliseum. That being said, even after this incident, racial integration was really slow to come about in the NFL. And no team followed the Rams reintegrating the NFL until the Detroit Lions signed a man named Mel Grooms and then also Bob Mann in 1948. And no black players selected in the NFL draft until 1949 when George Tafaro was selected, I think, in the 13th round or so. And he actually ended up signing with the All-American Football Conference, so he didn't even play in the NFL. And additionally, there were actually quotas limiting the number of black players. And black players were often stacked in the same positions to basically allow them to be eliminated as a matter of just competition. Reportedly, black players routinely received lower contract contracts and weights in the NFL, whereas the American Football League, the AFL, there wasn't really a distinction based on race. But position segregation was really prevalent at that time. And interesting enough, there's actually several books about this. One was the autobiography of, of Vince Lombardi, in which he basically said that black players were stacked at speed positions like defensive back, but they were excluded from these intelligent positions like quarterback or center. And Walt, Walt Fritz, who was at that time a, a really esteemed high, high school football quarterback, he received a scholarship to play college football, but he actually chose to play basketball instead because he believed that there really wasn't a future for black quarterbacks at the time to play professionally. And for him, it actually worked out. It paid off. He ended up having a basketball career and everything was good. However, despite the NFL's segregationist policies, after the league merged with the more tolerant, I guess you could say, AFL in 1970, more than 30% of the the league's players were African-American. Fast forward decades later, uh, there's a study looking at the 2013 season when 23 of the 32 starting quarterbacks, that's about 72%, in the NFL were white. So it's true that nowadays there are more opportunities, you could say, for black quarterbacks. But again, I think there's still that idea of certain positions are supposed to be for intelligent players. And the unspoken rule is that the intelligent players are the white players. White players slightly outnumber blacks when it comes to the makeup of defensive line. That is the line that protects the quarterback. It's about, they said about 49% versus 46%. Yet the center position is about 82% white. So the majority of the centers in the NFL are white. And again, that's considered a so-called intelligent position because you really have to coordinate with the quarterback you have to know when to snap the ball you have to call out the protections you have to see if the linebackers are going to be blitzing or if they're backing off so again these are all sort of so-called intelligent positions same thing goes with kickers of the 32 starting kickers in the nfl that year in 2013 only one of them was black And same with punting as well. There were two African-American punters. One, Reggie Hodge, he plays for the Cleveland Browns. And Marquette King for the Denver Broncos.
So speaking of all these different skill positions and talking about how some players of certain races are playing one position and some are in other positions, I did want to talk about Colin Kaepernick, who was one of the few black quarterbacks in the NFL. And this also ties into a lot of what's going on nowadays with Black Lives Matter. So as we know, a lot of the Black Lives Matter has mixed into sports, particularly football. And a lot of it really started with Colin Kaepernick. And for those of you who don't know, on the night of August 26th, 26, 2016, San Francisco 49ers quarterback at the time, 49ers quarterback, Colin Kaepernick refused to stand for the national anthem before the team's preseason game against the Green Bay Packers. And his defiance was nearly impossible to discern because he was actually surrounded by Gatorade containers on the team bench. And it probably actually might have been missed altogether had a a reporter from the NFL Network not noticed and actually asked him about it after the game. And he said, quote, I'm not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color, end quote. So really, this was an interesting thing because, again, people might not have noticed and they might not have said anything. But after he told that to the NFL Network, a firestorm basically ensued and it really ignited a national debate about inequality, police brutality, the meaning of the American flag, why we even have the anthem, all of this. And Kaepernick, who was really at that time a fading football star, who never really seemed political, all of a sudden instantly he became a nationally polarizing figure, sort of much like Muhammad Ali had been when he refused to fight in the Vietnam War. So while some fans started torching Kaepernick's jersey, others actually flocked to buy it, and others have, in fact, rushed to his side. So it's a really interesting thing to look at, and Georgetown University sociologist professor Michael Eric Dyson, who's an African-American historian, he called his protest, quote, a thoughtful reflection on how best to highlight the plague of injustice and the need, finally, to hold our nation accountable for black death in the streets, end quotes. Three players, uh, that would be 49ers teammate or ex-teammate Eric Reed, Denver Broncos Brandon Marshall, and Seattle Seahawks Jeremy Lane, actually joined Kaepernick in refusing to stand for the anthem. And after that, also uh, Megan Rapino, who plays for the women's national team, she also joined as well. So in many ways, Kaepernick has chosen the perfect forum, right, for really drawing attention to Americans' problems with racial inequality. No major American professional league drapes itself in this overwrought patriotism, I would say, more than the NFL. And no other league well, the NBA aside, is as dominated by African-American athletes. And the national anthem is always this huge event right before games with honor guards and salutes the soldiers and the giant American flags that cover the field and military jets always buzz around the stadium. In some cities, you know, players, you can see them like they're clutching the American flags. They lead their teammates to the field. It's a huge thing, right? And it makes sense. In the past few years, especially in the U.S., we've seen the surge of, of protesting, of highlighting racial inequality. And in 2016, when, when Kaepernick started kneeling, it was a few years removed from the shooting of, of Michael Brown, as we remember 
he was a brown, a, a black teenager who was shot by white police officers in Ferguson in Missouri. And the protests, most notably by Black Lives Matter, have really helped to push the conversation about race into national consciousness. And of course, nowadays, recently with the, the death of George Floyd, and we're seeing a lot more movement and a lot more outrage, it's, it's really interesting how sports is, is becoming an arena in which to speak about it. So back to, to Kaepernick, though, I do want to make a point. So at the time when he did this, he was really not really as much a prominent player as he had been in 2012. Back then, he led the, the 49ers to, I think it was about really five yards short of winning the Super Bowl. Uh, but after that, his play really tumbled and his teammates mm, really, they they supported him, but they didn't see him as a superstar and other teams sort of started to adjust to his running style and passing style. And in fact, in 2016, he lost a starting quarterback job, which really started distancing him from his teammates. And soon after he was cut. And at this point, years later, he hasn't played a snap in the NFL since since 2016. But I have to say that I've always liked Colin Kaepernick because like me, he was adopted. He grew up in an all-white family. He had a lot of opportunities and privileges afforded to him. And so a lot of people had said, hey, you know, you went to good schools. You grew up in a good neighborhood. Why are you complaining? But like me, I think just because maybe you have those opportunities, it doesn't mean that you didn't experience racism. It doesn't mean that you can't stand up and fight for what's right. So I really admire him and I admire him for what he stands for. And in this case, what he kneels for, because uh, he actually, after sitting for the anthem, he had some conversations with veterans and he decided, uh, I guess after consulting with them, that he was going to kneel instead of sit because he wanted to still show respect for his country, but he wanted to do it in a way that didn't look like he just did not give a shit. So last week when the NFL kicked off, the Houston Texans actually left the field before the national anthem. And there's a Kansas City Chiefs player who knelt and raised his fist. And players on both teams then gathered at midfield and linked arms. And before a ball was even hiked in the 2020 NFL season, player-led messages against racism were spotlighted. And it was actually for the first time, if, if ever, I would say, it was supported by the league. And this is after years uh, year, years, and years of battling to kind of discourage players from protesting. Uh, but of course, this also comes after a summer of, of really unheaval in the U.S., which again was promoted by, by George Floyd. It actually seems seemingly has inspired the NFL to reverse course. So the, now, the league is now sort of saying it encourages players almost to express themselves. And its new commitment to social justice seems like it's, it's becoming sort of now the new norm. Uh, there's these end racism and it takes all of us are actually on some of the end zones at stadiums. Players are allowed to wear Black Lives Matter decals on their helmets. Uh, Lift Every Voice and Sing is a, a song commonly referred to as, I guess, the Black National Anthem is, is supposed to be played before each game. Uh, so it's, it's a really interesting thing. The NFL committed, I think it was $250 million to social justice causes. And they're offering up stadiums as polling stations. So Colin Kaepernick, you could arguably say he really 
kick-started all of this. And he says that he actually wants to be signed by an NFL team. And league sponsors like Nike are actually calling for an NFL team to sign him. He's been reinstated to Electronic Art Inc., which is, I guess, is a popular Madden NFL video game. And it actually, ha- he has higher ratings than some of the, the league starters. But with all of this being said, none of the NFL's 32 se- teams have actually signed him. But again, more than ever, I would say this season, we're four years removed from when Kaepernick first knelt during the anthem. I think that is really starting to take off and the causes he promoted have really coursed through the U.S. And also, I should say, spilled onto NBA courts as well. Uh, We also see it in the Major League Baseball diamonds and soccer pitches around the world. And as the NSL season really begins, it's, I guess you could say it's first season in which, again, protesting is encouraged. The symbolism is is really interesting. It's really stark. Um, Kaepernick, for example, he took a knee to protest police brutality. And we know that George Floyd was killed after a police officer placed a knee on his neck. So I think there's a lot to talk about here and there's a lot to examine. But, you know, the NFL's always had a sort of uncomfortable relationship with this topic and I think it's really clear since Kaepernick is still a free agent and it's the fourth consecutive year that he is and I think it's sort of sending a message that somebody at Kaepernick who again once he led the the 49ers to a Super Bowl and a championship he you know never played another snap after the the 216 season I think it's interesting that there's still, I don't know, the sense of like wanting to cater to audiences that maybe are not supportive of Black Lives Matter, because obviously there are a lot of fans, a lot of mainstream fans that are not going to be on board with this. So even though Kaepernick is not playing, I think it's part of this has to do with how the league is thinking about how it's going to what the the fans are going to think about all of this, right? So even from the sidelines, I think Kaepernick, we can say, has really, really caused conversations and continuing to cause conversations. And some supported the players' right to protest social injustices, and some do not. Uh, President Trump, among other critics, assailed the gesture as unpatriotic and he says that it's against the troops and in fact during one weekend in the 2017 season when players across the league were were kneeling uh he basically referred to a player as as a son of a bitch and he said that the owner should get them off and so yeah it's clear that within sports and even outside of sports the idea of protesting has become a very controversial topic the way I see it, honestly, you're you're allowed to be critical of your country and you're allowed to protest. And they always say, oh, just protest peacefully. Well, well, I think that they tried to protest peacefully and I think no one liked it. I mean, I think you can't get much more peaceful than just taking a knee and not saying anything. So to me, Black Lives Matter or taking a knee or anything like that, well, it just seems as American as apple pie and football. So one thing I also wanted to just add really quickly is that if you're interested in learning more about racial inequality 
and sports. Colin Kaepernick has an organization that I like and I actually donate monthly to. It's called Know Your Rights. And he does a lot of stuff with youth and schools and also just community programs, basically raising awareness about social justice. So I think it's a really, really good organization. Okay, well, it is that time of the episode. It's time for Ask a Black Friend. Okay, so since we are talking about football, I thought it would be appropriate to sort of talk about a question that I was discussing with actually a couple of my friends, and it's concerning the Washington, well, the team that was formerly known as the Washington Redskins. So they have been the Washington Redskins for decades and decades, but now they have changed to a Washington football team and they have taken out the name Redskins. So the question is, is it a little too little too late that they have changed their name to Washington Redskins, or I'm sorry, they've changed their name from Washington Redskins to Washington football team, or is this a step in the right direction? Well, the thing is that, yes, it could have been done sooner, and it was certainly something that I know had been talked about for many years but I think it is a step in the right direction. And and they're not the only ones that are making these, these changes. I know this year Quaker Foods actually announced it's retiring the 130-something-year-old Aunt Jemima brand. And the owner of the Uncle Ben's brand of rice says that the brand is going to evolve. Uh, they haven't said how, but they're going to try to revamp it so there's not as much racial stereotyping. Also, the Land of Lakes, the butter, in April, they said they removed the likeness of a Native American woman from its packing. And there are also a lot of these different initiatives, too. I know there's a Change the Mascot and Illumini Native, I think it is. It also is protesting against other Native American team names and mascots and traditions as well, besides just the Redskins. And I know that there's talk about in the and Major League Baseball, the Atlanta Braves, they have something that's like a tomahawk chop. Uh, so they're trying to do away with a lot of these Native American uh, imagery, which I think, by the way, could be an interesting, that could be another interesting episode that uh, that I could do about Native American stereotypes or Native American mascots or things like that. But to get back to the original point, I think it is a really good step in the in the right direction. I know that there are some people that argue that it's flattering, that it's the red sting, the Redskins wasn't meant to be offensive. It was meant to pay tribute to Native Americans. But I just, I do feel like without being a word police or without people becoming too sensitive, I think it's just time to sort of do away with a lot of these negative stereotypes. I think nobody likes to be a costume. Nobody likes to see themselves kind of dressed up as a caricature. I think it's the same thing as, you know, with blackface, nobody likes that. Nobody thinks it's funny because it's just an exaggeration of of what we are and what we look like. So I imagine, obviously, I'm not Native American, so I can't speak to that. But I imagine that many Native American people probably just feel like it's not flattering and it's not really respectful and it's something that really 
needs to go. So I think that it is a step in the right direction. I really do. And I think it's great to see that other companies and other sports teams are are also making the move as well. Because there are actually a lot of, when you think about it, there's a lot. I don't think so much in basketball, but definitely in baseball and definitely with some of the NFL teams as well. There are certain names or mascots or things like that that I think are a little bit antiquated and I think would be, I think the time is now to sort of move forward and move in a more positive direction. So that's sort of my my two cents on the Washington Redskins. So I want to end the episode as I always do with a quote. And the quote is this week from Colin Kaepernick. And he said this, people don't realize what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust. People aren't being held accountable for them. And that's something that needs to change. That's something that this country stands for. Freedom, liberty, and justice for all. So I think that he basically said it all. And I think he summed it up really well. So that's all for for today. As always, thank you so much for joining me. And go Patriots.